Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Craig Brown, Senior Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. I'm joined, as usual, by David Coombs, Head of Multi-Asset Investments. Good morning. And Will McIntosh-White, Fund Manager for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Morning. We're also joined today for our special Christmas edition by Rahab, so we've got the whole podcast team assembled for your listening pleasure. Morning, Rahab. Morning. So much like our December episode in 2021, this month we're going to be assessing David's predictive powers, or perhaps lack thereof, and take a look back at the predictions he made uh, in 2021 for the year ahead. Uh, will David have managed to improve on last year's score of four and a half points, which I think was a bit generous in some corners? Au but contraire, we I, thought will see. Very, <laughs> I thought you were very tough, frankly. Well, we will see. Maybe I've got tougher. But before we get on with the show, here are the usual do's and don'ts to keep us on the straight and narrow. This podcast is intended for professional investors and must not be shared with a non-professional audience. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager and coverage of any assets must be taken into context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect investment recommendations. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. So as a reminder for some and an introduction for others, every year David dons his best Mystic Meg outfit and has a rather tongue-in-cheek look uh, at the year ahead. However, he doesn't get to do this without any accountability though. So our December podcast is his day of reckoning. It's where we all get to hold David to account and just see how well those predictive powers are really working for him. As ever, little bit of a caveat, some of David's predictions, you'll probably know which ones, are designed to be taken with a large degree of salt. Now, as usual, David has cast his net pretty wide in terms of predictions. He does, of course, have an opinion on absolutely everything, as I'm sure everyone in this room can attest to, um, you know, over the years of working with him. But to try and bring some order to this, this wide range of predictions, we've tried to group them together into similar Topic. So, um, our first group of predictions are going to be a bit closer to home. So, these fair isles we live on. So, all of these predictions centre around UK specific themes. So, number one, David, was Jeremy Hunt is going to be Prime Minister by Christmas. So, I was right. <laughs> you I had mean, a week there. <laughs> we're very close. <laughs> Jeremy was running the country uh, while Liz was away looking for a Christmas jumper or something. I'm sorry, <laughs> you did not say the words de facto Prime Minister, you said Prime Minister, so I'm not sure I can actually give you I that. I think that's at least half, half a point. Half. I feel like half, half is generous. God, that is very generous. <laughs> I'm here to bring yeah. <laughs> strictness to the story. Rahab is the strict market. I'm going with Rahab. I'm, I'm on Rahab's side here, so I'm sorry. Can, can we'll... we give quarters? Or is no, that, quarters feels a bridge too far. I, I mean, think. in my defence, right, in, which I'm going to defend myself quite strongly here, you go for is... Uh, it would have been quite tricky to predict what happened with Liz Trust, to be fair. I, mean, I think you've got to give me some benefit here that that was undeniably the most weird year in UK politics. Uh, but of course, in some respects, it was quite helpful because for the first time in a decade, we bought some bonds, thanks to, to Liz and, and Quasi. Um, I was in a meeting the other day saying, do you remember the trust years? Which was obviously, it was trust days, wasn't it? So, mm-hmm. you know. I kind of got it right in there'd be a new prime minister. So I'm taking that as a quarter point. Um, Jeremy Hunt is chancellor. No one saw that coming, yeah. to be fair. I need to have the foresight to even mention Jeremy Hunt. Uh, it's Maybe. You're uh, softening, Ray. Right? Right. Don't You're get sold. Don't get sold on it. Okay, well, look, we'll, we'll perhaps revisit that one towards the end and see how close David is to his four and a half and see whether we want to be generous or not. But um, number two, David, was Brexit were blamed for the wet summer. Now, 
you got quite a lot of that wrong because it was um, a pretty dry summer. I think it was the joint warmest ever in England and pretty up there for the rest of the UK. And Brexit got gets blamed for pretty much everything, uh, but I'm not sure it got blamed for the weather, um, to be honest. What do you think, guys? I think Any advances on that? Solid zero for that one. Yeah, solid Sorry. zero. David's not even going to argue the toss over that <laughs> one, obviously. <laughs> Number three. Now, there's a few predictions wrapped into one here, I think. But So, inflation will be 4% at year end. Mm. No. <laughs> um, unemployment above 5%. Afraid not. Uh-huh. Ten-year gilts yielding 2.1%. Afraid not. But the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey does become unpopular with estate agents. Well, you absolutely nailed yes. that one. That's an emphatic yes. But, you know, three okay. out of four, I'm not, sure, I'm not okay. sure on that. So the inflation one, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, again, in my defence, I'm not sure many people predicted 11% inflation in the UK that by year fair. end. So I take that one on the chin. Um, what was the other one? The, uh, so you had unemployment by 5%. Now, unemp- yeah. Now, I might just pick you up a little bit on a technicality on this one in that people who are unemployed, either through sickness benefit or official unemployed, is probably around 5%. Certainly, the lost millions from the employment market is clearly a contributing factor to that inflation I think um, I'm not I'm not claiming I'm right but what I'm saying is the point behind it is still relevant because it is having an impact on the economy I, I think that's absolutely fair I mean it's a bit like defining a recession um, unfortunately there's still no points but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's right I've actually got I think I've got some sympathy with you on your yields because actually, when you look at where yields were at 0.8, which is very low, and a move to 2.1. Is that where they were at the start of the year, yeah. 0.8? Yeah. Move to 2.1 is percentage-wise. It's huge. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's 180 or something. I don't know. I don't have my calculator with me. But it's a, it's a massive move in yield. So actually, you know, I think it was a pretty decent call. And we're actually 3.1, so it's another 100 basis points, which is still a way away. And we obviously looked at four and a half. But look at the journey. I mean, yeah, to your point. I mean, crikey, look at, again, going back to the magnificent quasi, you know, uh, week, as I like to call it. You know, 30-year gilts went to 5.6. What did the two-year go to? 4.1? Something like that? 4.2? I can't remember exactly, but it was over four because we bought some, right? Mm. I mean, again, who would have... I mean, I'm not trying to defend myself here. That's all I am. But who could possibly have thought that we'd have such a volatile year in bonds. When I re-listened to last year's podcast, actually December and January one. Uh, you pushed up the listeners for last enough. December. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was talking about the nasty losses that you saw if you're a bondholder, because last year went from 0.2 to the peak of 1.2. It's a 100 basis point move. We've sat here saying, God, pr- pretty nasty if you've been in bonds. Well, this year... In the 10-year, you've basically seen peak to trough losses of 25%. And even with the recent rally, you're still sitting on a 17% loss. Which is why I'm getting invited to lots of panels saying, is 60-40 dead? And, and the argument is, no, of course it's not dead because of one year. But it's a sharp reminder that you can't just passively run 60-40. I think that that's the wake-up call for me this year, irrespective of what economic number we're looking at. You know... Since 2008, with zero interest rate policies and easy money, you know, pass, sit and hold has been a reasonable strategy, frankly, and rebalance every month and go away for the year, right? That you, you could have practically done that. Yeah, there's been a few blips here and there, of course there have, but generally speaking, this year, with some corporate bond funds down, what, 20, 30%, 
and and some of the guilt market moves you just talked about, particularly the long end, that what happened to LDI. You know, people have got to re-examine the whole buy and hold. And I, and I think, frankly, buy and hold is probably done for a while. But this it's interesting to talk about sixty forty because that argu- having that argument now is like after the horses bumped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we should people should have been having that argument when guilt yields were zero. Well, exactly because you're not getting any compensation for taking. Because I think people seem to forget or have memory lapse that duration risk existed. Mm-hmm. Duration risk was important, and sometimes duration risk can be painful. It's not always about buying long duration because you're on this enormous sort of three decade, four decade long bull run in, in 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 bonds that was just meant you got compensated well for duration. This year has been a massive reminder that less than 1% yield on government bonds and less than 3% on investment-grade corporate bonds is probably not an adequate mm. long-term return. It's that pendulum, isn't it? The pendulum always swings. You know, it's human behaviour. Human nature always means that pendulum swings to extremes on either side of things. And, you know, you know when you're at the extreme, that probably is the, is, is the right time to, to think about making that that sort of that sort of change. And I think, you know, that on that point of our is a 60-40 dead, for a lot of time this year and you know, early this year, people were asking, well, a bonds dead as an asset class. And I think, you know, it's pretty dogmatic to suggest that, you know, any asset class is is dead. I think asset classes may hibernate at times because ultimately there are periods where that asset class is attractive and there are periods where it's it's less attractive. And for us, bonds have been less attractive for a period of time before this year, really, where we started adding more to duration because yields are started adding to credit, as we've spoken about before, because all of a sudden spreads are wider. So credit has kind of come back out of hibernation. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Craig, because one of David's other predictions when I was listening was that we wouldn't buy any credit this year. So it's another zero. (laughs) (laughs) But the the interesting thing about that is just shows how big the moves have been. Because even your prediction that yields move 2.1, and maybe spreads would go a bit wider, wouldn't think that was going to be enough. No. So it just shows the scale of the move. Also shows I'm willing to change my mind, like it government does. U-turns, right? <laughs> <laughs> but just seriously for a second, you know, a lot of people are now thinking, oh, let's go back into corporate bonds. But when we were buying corporate bonds, when was the trust weeks? October, I mean, time moves. September. 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 September, yeah. When, I was, when we were buying those corporate bonds in those couple of weeks after the Kwartang statement, there was plenty of bonds to buy. People were selling, particularly in the US and passive funds. So there was, you know, it was quite easy to trade. We're trading below the, the bid price we mentioned before. You try buying corporate bonds now, you're, you're being quoted 2% above the offer. Mm. So it's all right saying I want to allocate more to corporate bonds, um, but you can't actually get hold of them. And that's why we've paused. We, you know, we've not added any more since that initial push in because now, the, again, liquidity has completely shifted. So credit and liquidity are massively important as always. And that's been the other thing this year you've seen. Lots of liquidity and then dries up very quickly again. So you've got to pick your moments you, and you can't wait to the end of the month to rebalance, right? Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think we can move on from that first section there. Well, that was a spectacular success, I think. Uh, Yeah, I suppose it depends where your benchmark is. Um, A valiant effort, um, some close, but I think at best I've got half a point out of three there. Um, I think if we're going to be generous and give David the Jeremy Hunt one on a technicality of de facto prime ministers. and and I think your direction of travel was correct, Mm. so I'll give you half. 
I wish you were marking my exams at school, Ray. I'm overwhelmed by your generosity. (laughs) So, in another year that's had more ups and downs than I experienced on the roller coaster Disney World this summer, there's been plenty to talk about and abundance of change. So, David's next exploration of his psychic abilities uh, takes us on to the areas of broad global markets and changes in global markets. So, your first prediction, David, was the US will outperform Europe again, despite it being more expensive. Sadly, that has not happened. Uh, Whether you look at local currency or sterling terms, I'm afraid Europe has outperformed the S&P 500. By how much? In local currency terms, by about eight or so percent. Yeah, but in sterling terms. In sterling terms, yeah, it's 26 basis points. (laughs) 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 That's still pretty phenomenal, actually, given, you know, what's gone on in NASDAQ, for example, and, um, you know, with the Fed increasing rates now am i right in saying the feds increased rates faster than any other time in history yeah. yeah so you know that again who would have thought that backdrop begin i mean at the beginning of the year it's been, i mean it's been incredible well we started this year again i was you know covering myself not in glory in january when i was saying we were expecting three or four because at the time that was sort of market expectation yeah. and the discussion yeah. was would it be three would it be four i can't even count how many we're up to now but we're <laughs> double divot comfortably double digits um, and so when you consider the scale of that versus expectations, no surprise that growth's been hammered. And as we know, the makeup of the US market's much more tech heavy, Europe much more value, in inverted commas, um, value that we tend to avoid. Certainly European value is not, not one that you're going to find a lot of in the portfolio. And I, well, your US for Europe, I always think is interesting because, I mean, you remind me a bit of Glenn McGrath making his ashes predictions, you know, every time it's 5-0, <laughs> whatever the weather. But I kind of, I kind of stand with you. Uh, and, I th- and I think, you know, year after year, won't surprise me to see the US continue to outperform Europe. Innovation on that side of the in that side of the world, you know, it bounces back even with the rate hikes. You know, mm. GDP is still quite resilient at the moment, um, which I do find remarkable. Okay, there are pockets that are getting hit and things are slowing a bit, but GDP is still positive, you know, despite the amount of rate hikes we've had. I think if you told me how many rate hikes we had at the start of this year and yet unemployment was still pretty strong, I mean, you know, still generating jobs, uh, GDP relatively robust. Uh, that's definitely surprised me. I think it just highlights the resilience of the US. I still think by the end of the year that m- my prediction, if we move it to the thirty first December, might still I might still <laughs> have some time on well, that. But. We'll see what happens to the dollar because uh, I think the the most staggering thing in all of those numbers really is the difference that dollar has made. You know, a ten percent swing. Well, yeah. in the performance of the S and P, you know, in the, in that relative performance picture. So it just and shows that, you how much uh, dollar. And, that, and that's after sterling's recovered to one twenty three. Exactly. I mean, remember again. On the month, on the Sunday night after Quasi's doubling down chat on yep. the Kuzenberg or whatever, you know we were at 103 in Hong Kong, weren't we? So yep. we've already had a massive retracement, which has been good for us because we were, you know, we, we were suffering a bit of pain with our hedging. Just remind listeners, we were 70 percent, 70 percent hedged out of the US dollar, so that was quite painful. We hit 103; that was a bit eye-watering for us. But now we are participating in those re- recovery in the US market because. We've mitigated a lot of that US dollar weakness, which could be a massive factor next year, to be honest. I, sus- I suspect unhedged, you've probably got pretty big negative losses from US equities from that, you know, 103 points, 20% yeah. move in the currency. We haven't seen 20% move in S&P 
That's well, a stretch the imagination. Yeah. No, ex- exactly. And I think that's the danger, isn't it, of, of having that exposure and just leaving that currency risk to run is when that snaps back the other way, you, you're in a difficult position explaining to clients why positive markets have not equaled positive portfolio performance. I th- yeah, I mean, I think people running multi-asset or balanced or whatever you want to call it, portfolios, would be very surprised by their dollar risk right now. Mm, absolutely. So on that one, David, I'm afraid I'm not going to give you a point. I think you were close on the uh, on on the sterling base returns, but uh, I think given the distance on the local currency, I'm, I, I can't give you that one. Um, so number two was special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs, cryptos and unicorns become endangered species uh, as it becomes clear the emperor is in fact naked. Well, I don't think you could have nailed that anymore if you tried. I I don't like to give David much. <laughs> Um, but I could foresee myself giving him two points for this bonus. Um, oh, as far as it's unwound in a way that I think yeah. few saw. Yeah. And uh, definitely times when people, well, you're a bit of a lone voice, I'd say, often at times, talking about crypto in particular. Um, and, uh, and you've seen a bit of a significant unwind. Now, I'm sure the crypto bulls will say, it's just a hiatus. Bitcoin's still got a long-term future. I'm not going to get into that argument now. Certainly don't have time. But just looking at the unwind of that space, you know, it had started by the back in the last year, but with the rate hikes that we've seen, you know, some of these businesses just being absolutely carted. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, I'm involved with a charity, as you know, and looking at taking crypto donations and the platforms. And my, my concern was really about the platforms, like it was with peer-to-peer lending, because you can draw these parallels because it's often the exchanges and the platforms that, are, that don't have sufficient capital that people forget about they get so focused on the bitcoin or the ethereal or whatever whatever the but actually it's the, it's the it's the platforms that's the big problem as well so it does become this kind of house of cards collapse because it's that it's the ripple impact of it isn't it and i think the other point i think is definitely worth mentioning is that they're whatever they are and whether they exist in the future or not i think probably not but as you say let's not get into that right now what we have to acknowledge, I think people do have to acknowledge, is that they're highly correlated to risk on. That's probably shocked a lot of people. Well, people are talking about crypto as an inflation hedge. Um, now, that well, is something we all bang the table again and said. It doesn't look like it at all. It's massively correlated. But isn't this just a rewind of what happened in the 80s when people were piling to wine funds and vintage car funds, right? I mean, okay, it's a big leap from a vintage car to Bitcoin. Like, But you think about what happened. They were so seen as alternative assets and non-correlated. And of course, you get a recession. What happens? No one's rushing out buying vintage wine or vintage cars. And and it, it feels, I've always said it feels like the same trade. And this year, that's kind of what's happened. Like, it doesn't mean people won't make money out of these things ever again. They could well do, you know, and I'm, I'm, we'll see. I, I personally wouldn't touch them, but they might well do. But let's be let's be clear, they're risk on assets and they and they're pretty punchy risk on assets in either direction. And as we've seen, there are lots of issues around things like liquidity, regulation, opacity of business models. And, you know, I think that always exists within these really nascent sectors. And I think we've got to acknowledge that whole sector is in the infancy of what it may eventually become. But you always get this... Yeah, and this, this kind of grift almost at the start of um, at the start of any industry, and, and yeah, there, there's there's a place for certain people in in in, in the investment markets who who have the risk profile and the, and the appetite mm-hmm. to take those kind of risks. But a lot of big blue chip you know, asset management companies and and wealth management got involved in this space um, when it's very nascent and legitimizes it and brings it into the mainstream 
before it was fully tested, and I think those companies ought to be taking a step back and saying, are we sure we've, we've done the right thing here? Well, I, th- I think in a very similar manner, looking at the sort of SPACs and unicorns yeah. as well, and I think it's a similar thing where actually someone described what was happening as almost public venture capital, mm. which I thought was a really good way of putting it. Yeah. And actually a lot of these businesses don't think should have been public, actually too nascent, yeah, too early to very be worrying true. about shareholders, yes. you know, who have a different set of expectations sure. versus venture capital. And one of the big things about venture capital is you have a lot of eggs in the basket, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. five, ten, you know, who knows, 90% of them go bust, yeah. but the 10% that don't, you make money hand over fist um, and it more than makes up for it. And I think, unfortunately, people were cherry picking what what looks some very interesting ideas. You know, I mean, we ran the rule over a couple and stayed well clear, thankfully. And unfortunately, they came too early, business models untested, but the Life other comes more but the, the the other important point coming from what you just said is that let's rem- I'm sounding like a stuck record here but venture capital and and private equity you buy at the trough of recession typically yeah. it's a cyclical geared equity play right and what tends to happen is they attract loads of money and liquidity when markets are up because everyone's fomo but actually if you look back you make the most money in private equity in the, in the fundraisings during a recession but then of course risk appetite's low fortune favors the brave in private equity world and what you see in the top of a market far too much money goes into those private equity raising and the quality of the investment falls and we've just seen exactly the same thing happen again and of course the big problem with private equity is and I think we've discussed this not sure on a podcast but over the years has been people pushing money into there because of the low volatility Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, we all know the reason why that is lack of correlation and so you know I mean I haven't seen what what various private equity funds have done this year but I suspect some of them have taken quite a lot of pain yeah we probably don't know it all yet no exactly so I think on that one David I'm on board with Will I think I think a bonus point on that one because you you were you were so bang on with that. Um, and as Will said, a lone voice at times. So I'm, I'm happy to give, give you that, you that two points. Number three, a final one in this section, was Chinese equities outperformed developed markets. And I'm afraid, again, um, they did not in either sterling or local currency terms. Um, By how much? A, a bigger degree. So about 5% in local currency terms and about 10% in sterling terms, I'm afraid. So either way you skin that one. David wants to wait till the end of the year. How, how, <laughs> how, how, how much were you one? telling me China was up last month? I can't remember which index I looked at, but I'm sure I saw a figure of sort of north of 20%. But I'm, that might be wrong. It might have been a stop. So I'd have to, okay. to fact check myself. <laughs> but look at the news today. Yeah. Mm. Huge change in COVID rules. Although Hang Seng was down 3%, which I don't quite follow but it could be that we're gonna to have to factor in Chinese economy reopening in uh, 2023 and I don't I don't want to get in front of our January podcast on predictions for next year but um, Chinese economy from COVID maybe we're coming to the end of that that doesn't mean there's lots of other issues around China which we discussed last podcast so please go back and listen to that one if you want to hear our chat on that because the longer term structural issues will still be in place yeah I think you know it's interesting seeing you know Chinese government now giving some pretty tough 
stringent KPIs to regions in terms of vaccination. KPIs? Which, uh, key performance indicators. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, you know, uh, for those of you who aren't up with uh, the, the, the corporate management speak of this world. but Far to um, acronyms in investment, I find. That is very true. That is very true. But yeah, so they, they've been pretty challenging to local governments in terms of getting vaccinations in people's arms, which is always going to have been the way out of this and their vaccination rates were lower. So look, you know, when China tend to turn their hand or turn their eye on something, it tends to get done fairly swiftly in that in that environment. So we'll we'll see what happens, I suppose. But uh, I think no points on that one, I'm afraid, David. You, you you fell a bit short. Maybe there'll be a recovery in the next couple of weeks, but I'm afraid that'll be too little too late by then. Harsh. <laughs> it, it is going to be one to watch this space, I think, quite closely, because I think that's huge wider implications. And yet, I can quite appreciate the amount to which China have been locked down at times. Probably, you know, if, if you tested positive, you had to go to isolation facility, exactly. So now, now I believe you are allowed to stay at home. The contact rules have changed. The testing rules have changed. I think they are positive. I think that's the thing, because the rules were so strict to begin with, although they have been loosening, there's still a way to go until we are anywhere near Western. No, that's, Western that's a fair point. And they could see a huge wave. That's your the other issue when you were talking well, about vaccination. Yeah, very, that's very right. We right. don't know what's going to happen with the cases. And you wonder how quickly some of those changes would they would be inclined to reverse them if there was a wave, you know. And I think again, you've seen some public backlash. It'd be interesting to see how much China and the the, the party would want to sort of poke that by by retrenching. It but. is interesting that the the, the the party has pulled back from big confrontation like we've seen in the past. They have kind of listened, and that's interesting in itself, actually. So that backlash supposedly was triggered, I was looking at this, in a place called Arumqui, probably pronounced that wrong, so apologies. Um, they've been locked down since August. Wow. Um, and it was to do with a fire in a yes. apartment block, yes. which, yes. which yes. killed 10 people, and then uh, people were saying, well, wow. part of the reason they couldn't get out is because of COVID restrictions. But it's just that when I saw it, have been locked down since August, you're like, wow, that is... You know, that's a very long time. Very, very long time. Um, and I say, I, I think the big problem is, is, you know, if they do see a wave, and of course they're opening up in colder months when mm. virus tends to be more prevalent, certainly seems to be knocking about here. Uh, hopefully it's not what you had, Craig, last <laughs> week, and, you, and you're passing it around as we speak. <laughs> um, but, you know, the implications, say, they have making a point that they're only just starting to reopen. And if they do manage a full reopening... You know, the implications on oil price, on commodities prices is is quite, you know, it could be quite big. Interesting how weak the oil price was yesterday. Mm. Uh, you know, down 4 or 5%. Mm. Yes, it's, I mean, but $75 WTI yesterday. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, one of the things is touched on, I think we mentioned it last time, you know, that a year ahead of hosting the Asian football tournament, you know, they cancelled it. But they've just cancelled next year's Grand Prix. So, again, I think it just highlights that they, they don't expect a complete normalisation you know, any time in the middle of the next year. No. So definitely one to watch. But uh, So on that sort of broad range of topics, David, I'm going to give you two points out of a technically a possible three because we gave you the bonus point, but we'll, we'll keep the scoring the same. So two out of three we'll give you there. So final topic, now final section of topics anyway. Uh, so the last group predictions cover uh, another area which has been a huge period of change, uh, probably more to come and, well, definitely more to come, quite frankly, in this area. So let's turn our gaze to some, pr some predictions that David made in the areas of ESG and sustainability. So number one was Volkswagen will sell more electric cars than Tesla. Now, it would appear that they have surpassed Tesla in Europe. And also VW CEO did say they'd completely sold out of their 2023 electric cars in, in the spring this year. So 
I'm feeling pretty. Ge- I'm going to give you that one. I think. I think mm-hmm. that that feels like you know if they're not there, I it think, feels a massive yeah, time. I, I think they've said, or reports have said, by I think 2024, they expect it to happen. So, couple of years early. But, but I think Europe, at its core market, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, but also, do you not think though that I mean, there's been so much. Tesla's been such. A big story and you know people get i mean I, I did a seminar here a few weeks ago on this floor where somebody in the, in the audience just repeatedly came back to me on questioning on tesla obviously loved the story people feel passionate always worry about people get passionate about an investment because mm. that usually means that's why there's lots of sort of middle-aged blokes like me that bought aston martin shares right <laughs> <laughs> um, i didn't which just be clear but um yeah i think the direction of travel and the reason we don't Hold Tesla. I mean, there's multiple. There's a number of reasons around the governance piece as well. But it's because I've always felt the European car make, and I picked Volkswagen. Obviously, this prediction. But my my the main view here I've had is that the it's a bit like the Netflix story. Eventually, the incumbents in that industry get their act together and catch up quite quickly because they've got access to capital. Yeah. And and you know, okay, I might be that might be an early call by me. Although in Europe, I'm, I'm going to claim half a point for Europe. I think because ultimately, uh, this is the controversial bit. Tesla makes American cars, and anyone who watches Top Gear knows American cars, right? Don't look great inside. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the German car makers tend to do a great job longer term in terms of value, performance, reliability. Although, have to be fair, the Japanese Koreans have, have mm. done an equally a good job. So I think. I think Tesla's got problems. Mm. And I think it's okay to like Tesla as a company, but when you could look at the investment case for Tesla, the valuation, it was it was based on Tesla essentially being the only company out there selling cars over the next decade. You know, they they ended up with a market cap greater than all of their competitors combined, which just seems But it's not even nonsense. an ESG story, is it, really? Yeah, yeah. Well that will be coming on to one of the next predictions actually. So Okay. Uh, oh yeah. right. We, we Sorry. Will. So I'm gonna give you a point on that one, I think. I'm I'm feeling quite generous, right. like Rahab was earlier <laughs> uh, on the Jeremy Hunt one. So uh, so number two was no one refers to stranded assets during the year. And I don't think I've heard much talk of stranded assets in 2022. So I think you kind of nailed that one, to be honest. I mean, again, it was a big thing. Obviously, people, every meeting you went to, why do you own oil companies? Um, certainly, if you talk to our charities team and to people in the charity space, you know, a lot of pushback on this. And now a lot of trustees say, why, why aren't you owning oil companies? You, you've gone completely full circle. Which, again, I think brings us back to the whole sustainability piece in that what we've discovered this year, which is no surprise to us, to be honest, because when we launched our sustainable funds, we kind of felt this was right, that how many people are willing to forego the financial veracity of your investment strategy versus sustainable aims? And I think, again, a bit like we've looked at crypto, people are reassessing. And the stranded assets piece is, is because it was a risk mitigator this year, because obviously oil prices so high, energy prices. Yeah, we're starting to see what people really think about sustainable investing and the performance chases that were out there have clearly gone away. And I think that's a good thing, don't you? Yeah, I think the war in Ukraine as well this year has definitely brought up that conversation about transition back to the forefront. And it's not just been oil and gas, it's also been nuclear power, for example, other areas of ESG like defence, where I think there's been a lot more debate around that whole space and people having more kind of sensible conversations about that transition piece. Um, You know, do they want transition? Do they want sustainable? So it's, I think it's great that people are thinking about it a lot more and actually trying to figure out 
you know, what do their clients want from, want from their portfolios um, rather than, you know, simply making the decisions for them. But, I mean, Rahab, in your conversations, clearly the, the, the distinction now between ESG and sustainable must be easier to make or for people to understand. Yeah, and I think it's a really important distinction to try and make when we're speaking to clients, when we're speaking to investors, to make sure they understand what is ESG and what is sustainable. Because I think for our Rapid and Green Bank portfolios, that's something we really, really try to do is to make it clear, you know, we're not trying to say whether something's necessarily right or wrong. We're just trying to be as clear as possible as to what is sustainable right now and, and what isn't. And there's obviously there's a place for transition. And, you know, we talked about defense, there's commodities, and there's just this a lot of different kind of complicating factors in that. And I think the main point is it's it's a journey. And we are very aware that, you know, commodities, for example, will be coming along that journey at some point. I think yeah. the bottom line is that people have still got to, you know, we think about the funds that we run, the financial risks are just as important as the, as the def, as sustainable risk. And I think that story this year especially, has become even more important than I think, you know, previous years, a lot of the sustainable funds were outperforming. And as you said, a lot of people were rushing to put money in because they were chasing that performance. Well, it was investment theme, wasn't it, rather than set yeah. values. Yeah. And I think now what this year has done has been painful, but now I think you probably do know and people are, m- are going to buy these types of funds with their eyes open. And I think that's not probably not a bad thing. And I think, you know, that, that point, Rahab, on, on commodities and mining stock leads on to point number three very nicely. So again, <laughs> you know, been talking, been setting this up, obviously, Fusion. between us. Um, so your last one, David, mining stocks get positive ESG ratings upgrades. So uh, there have been a couple. Vale got upgraded. Um, it's still a low score uh, on the on the spectrum, <laughs> but it's an upgrade. And Anglo-American were also upgraded uh, from A to AA. So I think I'm happy to give you that point, if I'm honest. I mean, I'm happy I've got the point, but I'm unhappy in a way because it goes back to <laughs> the highlights. Highlight highlight what we just talked about, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the fact that people wanted to shoehorn defense stocks into ESG funds is just the wrong response by the industry. And I think, you know, you can have the best of class and that's fine. And that maybe I'm not sure how they would get into that, but whatever. <laughs> I, I, I get that. But is is there really? I mean, I don't know what you think, Rahab. Is is there a future for best of ESG? We're, well, I, I think you're either sustainable or your core with with full ESG risk integrated. But I'm, I'm not this best of. I'm not sure. Yeah, and it goes back to also the point we were talking about Tesla earlier. We were talking about I think it was Elon Musk took to Twitter earlier this year to speak about the fact that Tesla had got taken out of a S and P um, yes, ESG index. Right. Um, and in that index, um, Exxon was one of the largest holdings. So I think your point around the mining stocks was about making sure you actually understand the methodologies yes. behind these ESG ratings. And again, it goes back to that point of ESG versus sustainable. And I think the issue we've had over the past few years really is that people have been piling money into ESG, perhaps thinking it was sustainable. And I think that's where you're talking about that distinction has become even more important. Well, I think it's okay to have all these different products as long as everyone's clear about what they are and what they aren't. If you want to have yeah. a best of product, now whether you would personally buy it or want to run that, that's a personal decision, but it might be right for someone the same way as sustainable might, you know, ESG. But the point is, as long as you're clear about what an approach is and what it isn't and how it will be invested, it's then down to the individuals to make the decision as to whether that aligns with their particular values. Yes, I don't disagree with that. 
But I think that clarity piece is difficult. And I think it's got lost. Like, it can, yeah, exactly. It's lacking at the moment. Yeah. And, and because someone can name something ESG, and at the moment, yeah. the public generally thinks, well, they have a concept of what that is. And I yeah. think actually often it's. I it's kind not. of disagree with you, actually. I, don't, <laughs> I, I, I think you need to be much clearer. I think there's huge room for misleading. Um, but that's statements. the point. I think it's that clarity. Yeah. As long as you're very, very clear what your approach is, we buy best of, best of being X, Y, Z. I think that's 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 kind of okay. But anyway, I think we'll wrap this up now because otherwise it'll be a whole other podcast, a special edition Indeed episode just on this topic. So I think we've got three points, actually, David. So you've clearly found your mastermind specialist subject. Oh, uh, round. who would have known? <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say right now? Um, Brutal. <laughs> Absolutely cutting. So, <laughs> um, as a final bonus prediction, David did give us a tongue-in-cheek one, uh, topical given the upcoming Netflix uh, documentary, but Prince Harry suggesting everyone should have 30 weeks holiday a year but stay at home by their pools. So, I think the less we discuss that one, the the, the, the better. I've got um, so much to say. Yeah, started. exactly. I promised uh, our PR department that David would not speak about that. Um, so, anyway, overall score. So, last year, four and a half. Okay. This year, five and a half. Whoa. You've improved wow. your score by one. I think so that's well a good done. score given the year that we've had. It's not well. bad. It's not too shabby. So now we move on to our final AOB section of the year, our last opportunity to have a gripe in front of a large audience until uh, 2023 anyway. So, um, David, do you want to kick us off with this one? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about virtue signaling. So having just got brownie points for, for my sustainable predictions, um, Supermarket Christmas adverts, right? All pretending to be lovely companies, and all all of them adverts got big brown turkeys, p- tables laden with all sorts of foods, all exactly the same as every other year, and trying to pretend they're just not trying to flog us stuff that makes us unhealthy. So um, just be what you are. You're selling lots of unhealthy foods. We have a great Christmas. Where would we be without Kevin the Carrot? You know, that we all need these little what? gimmicks to get us through the year. What supermarkets you shop at? Kevin the Carrot? Is, is it Lidl or Aldi? One of them. Oh, I wouldn't, Kevin I wouldn't know. That's a <laughs> David wouldn't know. It's That's not a card. Yeah, it's not a card. Did Fortnum and Mason have a Christmas holiday? <laughs> <laughs> so, Will, where are you taking us next on our journey of AOB? Well, if you remember, I had a little gripe at uh, Ed Sheeran, who's absolutely everywhere. Yes, harsh. Um, yeah, and uh, I noticed that Taylor Swift came out with a new album. And Very I, good. Uh, and I think almost, if, I think she was literally number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in the charts at one point in wow. the US, in the streaming charts. I might be completely wrong, but I heard something like that. And anyway, highly, highly popular, and it seems to be ever. However, I have to confess, I actually quite like the album. It's a good album. I actually quite like that. So can she stop making really good music, please? Because I think it's a bit embarrassing for a 38-year-old man to be listening Are to Taylor Swift. Are you one of those Swift. people, Will, that's been driving up the price of tickets to her concerts to 11000 oh, Yeah, I don't even have any kids in a car that I can blame her. <laughs> Somebody might get out excuse, you know. Listening so to middle music. of the road, Will. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Rahab, what's your AOB? So mine's kind of related to the party season. It was also my birthday a few weeks ago and the team will know because I was complaining about this during a team meeting was just how busy London is and how (laughs) hard it is to get bookings these days um we were trying to get booking to go ice skating during the week middle of the day on a Wednesday everything was fully booked up so I think especially post-covid central London has just become impossible to to book dinners you have to book weeks in advance and 
yeah, that's one of the one of my gripes over the last it's few bizarre months. Bizarre as well, isn't it? Don't understand it. Don't I, understand I can understand how that'd be very annoying though, because like you say, booking something on a random Wednesday afternoon, normally you think that's peak. I can get in. You probably can next not. week. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Indeed. Yeah, everything has been cancelled next <laughs> yeah. week. That um, is one on thing. that topic, my OB is the trains. Now, don't <laughs> worry, it's not going to be what you think it might be. Um, it's going to be train Wi-Fi. Now, uh, I've been on the road a lot over the last couple of weeks and some of that with, with Rahab and some of that uh, by myself. And on the trains, it's quite handy sometimes with our laptops now to be able to work. If only there was working Wi-Fi um, that actually allowed us to log on and work properly. You know, you can go on an airplane now and pay five quid to get Wi-Fi, but I don't seem to be able to get Wi-Fi on the train between Bristol and Manchester. It's absolutely absurd. I think the best You managed thing, to get on a train between uh, Bristol and Manchester? I managed to get on one, thankfully. First you have to run on the train. Yeah, you didn't have to run on the train from yeah. Edinburgh, yeah. <laughs> uh, from Leeds to Edinburgh, rather. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, all this money gets spent on HS2 and all these different projects. The best thing the country could do for productivity is for the government to spend a ton of money on working Wi-Fi because then we don't need to go between Birmingham and wherever in 20 minutes. We can spend some time on the train and actually work with Wi-Fi. Sounds like something I'd say, Craig. It does sound like something Will would yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> and may have said that I've slightly pinched. And you work on the trains, do you? <laughs> you just I watched, tried to. Anyway. You'll be watching Harry and Meghan. Okay, interesting concept. Yeah. <laughs> For the third time with a notepad, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so, um, thanks uh, everyone for joining us, and we'll hope you join us again for the next monthly instalment of the Sharp End in the new year. If you didn't listen at the time, please feel free to go back and listen to earlier episodes. Last month, David Will and I discussed the dizzying array of events which occurred in the UK in October, the tech sector in light of the earnings season, and whether big change is a in China. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Please don't forget to hit the subscribe and like button um, and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you'd like to hear more about the Rathbone multi-asset funds, please speak to your usual Rathbone sales contact or visit the website at www.rathbonefunds.com. That leads me to just finish off by saying thank you again to all of our listeners this year. Your support has been greatly appreciated. We hope we've given you some food for thought and maybe a few laughs along the way. And from the whole multi-asset team, we wish you and your families an enjoyable festive season and a happy new year. Thanks again. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.